Welcome to Cross Lane Community Church, where we are committed to bringing people to Jesus. We hope you enjoy this online message. We've been asking the question, how did the church survive the first century? Why is there a church today? Why does a third of the world's current population profess to some faith in Christ, and many of those believe that he is the Son of God? The answer to that question can be found in the book of Acts. We have discovered that on the day of Pentecost, there were 3,000 people opening day who gave their life to Jesus. That's what you call a great church plant, okay? When you, that's how you know it's good. 3,000 people join your church on the very first day, good day. So within like a week, two-week period of time, it goes from zero to 3,000 to another couple of thousand. By the end of this stretch here, you've got 10,000 people in a very short period of time who have come to Jesus, and they're professing Christ. Over 10% of the population of Jerusalem is now professing Christ in this period that we're going to look at. And um, with this groundswell of a new movement, it, it disrupted a very delicate balance between Rome and the Jewish leaders. There was this kind of balance of power between the two, and they kind of allowed each other certain controls. They, they needed each other to some degree. And suddenly there's this new movement that seems to be anti-Roman because the Romans crucified their leader, and it seems to be anti-Jewish establishment because he was constantly calling those guys out. And so uh, these new followers of Jesus were caught between these two groups of people. And now, instead of just there being one guy or 12 guys following the one or a small band that were following Jesus, now you've got two, three, six, seven, eight, ten thousand 10,000 people who are calling themselves followers of the way. That's kind of the way they described it. <clears throat> they were basically going around the city saying, Jesus has risen from the dead. He is the Messiah. We can never go back to the way it was before. Consequently, persecution broke out. And, and we left off last week talking about the apostles and how they, they were warned to stop talking about Jesus. They were told, don't use that name. And they were also told, stop talking about the resurrection. So the R word, resurrection, and the J word were off limits to these guys. And they were told in no uncertain terms that they should stop doing it. We, we read how um, these men were flogged. They were arrested. They were let go, arrested again, and, and brought out and flogged. And, you know, when you read that in the, in the Bible, you, you read that section there. We, we looked at it last week. It's one little sentence that says, then they, they flogged them, had them flogged, and let them go. And it's real easy to read through a sentence like that and think to yourself, oh, they flogged them and let them go. No, 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 no. Stop down. And understand that these disciples of Jesus, this 11 or 12 or however many there were there at the time, were chained to a post. And someone took a cat of nine tails and beat them relentlessly with it until it literally ripped the flesh off their bodies. Don't read, they were flogged and released and think, oh, well, they just say I got flogged and released. No, flogged is one word, but it's an all-day event. And while they're flogging your buddy, you're standing there watching it happen, knowing you're next in line. And after they've been beaten and warned not to speak of the name of Jesus anymore, here is where we left off last week. 
the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. We don't find them huddled together asking the question, how come bad things happen to good people? That's not what they're asking. We don't find them saying, where is God? We don't hear them asking the question, does God really love me? In spite of what happened to them, we find them stepping out and in an incredibly bold way and saying, in spite of what you tell us, we can't stop talking about what we have seen. We've seen him raised from the dead. Don't try to tell us we didn't. You can beat us all you want, but we know what we saw. And we can't stop talking about this message that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Well, the church continued to grow and grow, and it overflowed out of Jerusalem to their surrounding areas, and things got so big and complicated that hierarchy began to develop and structure, and that leadership begins to develop in the church, and other leaders begin to surface and take on responsibility. And one of the leaders was a man named Stephen. We don't know a lot about Stephen, other than that he surfaced as one of the first deacons in the early church. And Stephen began to speak very boldly about his faith and about Jesus. And because he was not one of the apostles, the Jewish leaders in the Sanhedrin thought maybe they could take advantage of a unique situation. And they had Stephen arrested, and they paid people to say bad things about Stephen, and they paid people to say things that Stephen had said that Stephen hadn't said. And pretty much he was falsely accused, and pretty much he um, had people say things about him that, that were not true. And he gives a defense, if you want to read that, you don't need to turn there now, but if you ever want to read that defense, it's Acts chapter 7, it's very powerful. And he basically takes his Jewish audience all the way from the Old Testament all the way through to current times to explain that, in fact, Jesus is the Messiah. And at the end of the message, and just for the record, I don't ever hope this happens in one of my messages. I want to stir you, but I certainly don't want to stir you to the point that he stirred them. At the end of his message, they were so stirred up that they bodily picked him up and took him outside the city and they stoned him to death. Now, I don't hope that ever happens here. Stephen was actually the first martyr. And once he was killed and once there were no negative reprisals from the Roman government, which was kind of the thing that the Jewish leaders were a little worried about was, can we kill somebody like this or are we going to have to pay for it with the Roman government? Once they realized that they weren't going to be held accountable for it, it empowered the enemies of the church to begin a widespread persecution of all those that were naming the name of Jesus and embracing Christianity in Jerusalem. Now, as Luke explains what happens next, he introduces this period of persecution that broke out against the Christians. And as he introduces it, he introduces it in sort of a strange foreshadowing kind of way. We see a character that would make a huge difference in the local church. Here's how the the book of Acts, how Luke in the book of Acts explains what happened next. And if you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. I love that sound. Pages turning. I like that.
Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul was there at the stoning of Stephen, giving approval to his death. Now Saul is the Hebrew name given to the man that we will come to know as the Apostle Paul. Saul was there giving approval to his death on that day, on the day that Stephen was stoned. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, which was a fulfillment of what Jesus had said. He said, this message is going to go out. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and to Judea and Samaria and beyond, even to the ends of the world. And so this is starting to become true. And so because of the persecution of the new followers of Jesus, many of them headed for the hills. And they left Jerusalem because of this intense, intense persecution. Verse 2, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. And there's a reason he went house to house. That's where they met in churches in those days. You found them all cloistered together in a church, and they met in homes. And so Saul really begins this full-court press looking for these people that he could take back to Jerusalem and have them persecuted for following this new cultic-type religion. And he becomes somewhat of a rock star among his people. They like him. He is known as the guy that can track down these followers of the way, which is what Christians were known as at the very beginning, And he really thought, here's the thing that you lose in in all this, Paul really thought, Saul at the time, really thought that he was serving God by having these people taken to Jerusalem and killed. He thought that's what God wanted him to do. He's he's a religious guy, and he thinks that that in his faith, the the best thing he can do is squash this new cultic-type faith that these people are professing. So he's arresting these Christians, having them thrown in jail. Many of them are put to death. And while he's persecuted the church, the church continues to spread. Um, It's almost like he was kicking over the anthill and the ants would scatter and get bigger. And then he would kick over another anthill and they would scatter. And and the more anthills he kicked over, the bigger the message of Christianity got, the more widespread it became and the more people who came to Jesus. And by persecuting the church, He actually drove the message of Jesus out into the countryside and outside of Palestine. Even to this day, when you persecute the church, the church flourishes. It does not stop. Ask China. But at the end of three years of unchecked persecution, something incredible happened that changed everything for this man named Saul. And it changed everything for the spread of the gospel. Here's what Luke tells us. If you'll turn over to Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, you say, well, what's up with that? They weren't called Christians at this point. They were called people of the way or followers of the way. You say, well, why would they use that expression? It's because Jesus used the expression, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And apparently, he used that expression a lot. We have it recorded in, in uh, John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And you hear that and you think, well, that sounds inc- like an incredibly narrow thing to say. 
And you start to think about it, if you're going to launch a new movement, you might not want to open with that. That's probably not the thing that you're, you're thinking about the most. This, you know, I'm just going to tell them that I'm, I'm the only way. That sounds like something a crazy person would say or someone who is deceived. But apparently, this was so central to the teaching of Jesus that this is what they came to be known as were people of the way. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So he's on his way to Damascus. He has these letters, permission basically to arrest any Christians he finds, drag them back to Jerusalem and have them tried. Verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, if the church was the church like most of us think about the church, this verse would have said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute it? It being the institution, it being the building, it being the pastors and the leaders. But here in the first century, the voice says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he'll say this in a minute, but you know, Paul's going to say, you know, what do you mean me? I'm not persecuting a pronoun, I'm persecuting an it. I'm persecuting a thing. I'm persecuting a movement. Verse 5, he asks the question, Who are you, Lord? And then you get the reply, I am Jesus, whom, it's a person, whom you are persecuting. Implication, what you do to my people, you do to me. And the presence of my people is the same as my presence on the earth. Do you know what that means for us? That, that means we are the representation of Jesus on the earth. Not you individually, you're not that good, okay? I'm not that good. We can't do that by ourselves. We can't be the representation of Jesus entirely on the earth. But the, the church is the representation of Jesus on the earth. We are his hands and his feet and his mouthpiece. and his, We are Jesus on the earth. And even in the first century, there was a recognition that this movement, this group of people was overflowing into the countryside together collectively. It represented the, the person of Jesus. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. Jesus replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up. This voice is talking to Saul now. And go into the city, the city being Damascus, and you will be told what you must do. So Saul gets up, he realizes he can't see. He was, I almost played this song for you this morning, he was literally blinded by the light. You remember that song, oh you rock, heavy rockers in the 80s or 70s, is it Manfred Mann Band, is that who did that? Blinded by, I almost played it this morning just to get your groove on a little bit, but I didn't. I should have. He stands up, he can't see, the people around him take him by the arm, they're going to lead him into the city of Damascus, and for three days, he sits in someone's house, he can't see a thing, and all he does is pray. Oh my goodness, what has happened to me? What is going on? His entire life, his whole worldview is flipped upside down. Meanwhile, there's another guy in Damascus named Ananias. And this is really where the story begins today. I love Ananias. I think Ananias is probably my favorite character in the whole Bible. You don't know hardly anything about him. He's a very humble man. 
We, we have very little history on Ananias. And, and he, he's probably my favorite person because in my mind, if there's no Ananias, Paul never happens and the church may never have survived. I mean, there's an awful lot riding on this guy that we don't know all that much about. I want you to listen to what Ananias does. Verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered, and it's not going to be good news. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And, and Ananias is thinking, Saul of Tarsus. Name rings a bell. And then Ananias does what we've done at different times in our life. You've probably done this. Ananias is going to try and talk God out of what he wants him to do. You ever done that? Listen to what Ananias says back. Verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. In other words, God, I think he's looking for me. I don't think I need to go looking for him. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my, and this is where this story really starts to get rich. This is where it starts to make sense. How in, this, in the world did the message of Jesus survive the first century? Here's how. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. Gentile beings, for the conversation here, someone who's not Jewish. It's not somebody who... who Lived in, you know, basically you're gonna you're you're gonna preach the message to people who maybe haven't grown up in this region. You're gonna preach the message to people who didn't grow up Jewish, who didn't grow up memorizing the Old Testament, who didn't grow up anticipating and looking for a Messiah. You're gonna you're gonna take the gospel to people who are different. In other words, this message is for the entire world. It's not just for a small group of people. And God chooses this most unlikely candidate in the first century to be the mouthpiece of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias agrees to go and he finds Saul. Can you imagine what it had to have been like if you're Ananias and you're walking up to a door and you know that the guy on the other side of the door is a guy that is responsible for having your friends arrested, dragged off to Jerusalem, and we've never heard from them again. We don't know what happens when they get to Jerusalem. We're pretty sure it's not good. And God is sending me up to knock on that door, and on the other side of that door is the man responsible for the loss of my friends and probably some family members. Can you imagine? And Ananias knocks on the door and he walks in and there he finds Saul blinded. And he laid his hands on Saul and, he, and Luke tells us that something like scales fell off of Saul's eyes and he was able to see and they prayed together and he explained to Saul, God has given you a unique privilege, a unique opportunity, a unique mission and you will suffer greatly. But your mission is to take this message, the message of the church, 
the message of Jesus Christ to the entire known world in your lifetime. Acts chapter 9, verse 19. The second second part of the verse. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? And then Luke says, Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. And for the next 12 or 14 or 15 years, Saul essentially disappears. And he speaks here and there, and he shows up once in a while, but for the next 12 or 14 years, Saul gets his own education. He studied and learned. And he spent time with Jesus' followers. He tells, We're told in the book of Galatians that he went and spent two weeks with Peter, just listening to Peter talk about Jesus, listening to Peter talk about how Jesus taught, how Jesus lived, the, the way Jesus acted around people, what kind of things did he do. Saul took it all in. He also tells us that he spent some time with James, the brother of Jesus. And we know that he went to Jerusalem on at least two accounts um, to spend some time with the closest followers of Jesus. And after those years of learning and absorbing and after those years of trying to figure out and learn as much about Jesus as he could, he launched out on what we call Paul's missionary journeys. Google Paul's missionary journeys. You'll see where he traveled all around Europe. You, you may have Bibles in your, in, or, uh, you may have maps in your Bible. I'm pretty sure if you turn to the back, you would find Paul's missionary journeys. And for the next 10 or 11 years, he traveled throughout Turkey and Greece from Jerusalem. And during those 10 to 12 years, he stopped and he planted these little ecclesias, these little gatherings, these, these little churches. Meanwhile, the apostles are all huddled together in Jerusalem. They're trying to get one church to go and fly straight, which is hard enough, right? And it's as if Paul looks at these guys, other disciples, and he says, you take Jerusalem, I'll take the rest of the world. And he set out to start churches everywhere else. And for 10 or 11 years, mostly by ship, he traveled in three big circles, mostly around this this one region. And everywhere he went, he would go to the synagogue first, and he would try to convince as many Jews as he could. And sometimes they would throw him out, sometimes they would beat him up, sometimes they would would, uh, stone him, He'd been left for dead. All kinds of bad things happened to Paul. And then he would go to the Gentiles in that area, and he would say, I have some great news. God God has brought to an end all of the religion that you've been participating in. There's something new. It's a culmination of this beautiful thing, and it all has to do with Jesus, who is the Son of God and has come to save the world. He did this in Corinth, in Athens, in Ephesus. All over this part of the world, he went into the major cities and he fearlessly and boldly proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then in 58, he was arrested while he was in Jerusalem. He was taken up to Caesarea and kept in jail there for two years. He let them know in Caesarea that he was a Roman citizen 
and wanted to be tried in Rome. And so he made appeal to the Roman emperor. And after two years, he began the long, arduous, dangerous journey of, from going from Jerusalem to be tried in Rome. 1,500 miles. He was there under house arrest for two years. And while he was under house arrest in Rome, he wrote some of the literature that is some of the most famous literature in all the world. He wrote the letter to the church at Ephesus we know as Ephesians. He wrote the letter to the church at Philippi, which we know as Philippians. He wrote uh, other letters that have been lost, but many of those letters have been preserved, and they make up the bulk of the New Testament. And these letters were written, many, not all of them, were written while he was in prison, quite possibly chained to a Roman guard. And he wrote back to these churches all around the Mediterranean rim where he had planted these churches. And after two years in Rome, he was released, and then he was rearrested in the year uh, 66. He spent about a year and a half once again in prison, this time in a real dungeon. Nero was the emperor at the time, and if you know anything about world history, you know that Nero hated Christians. Hated Christians. Nero's idea of a good time was to take Christians, have them dipped in a pitch or a tar of some type, have them strung up in his garden and lit on fire, and he would watch games played on the field by the firelight of Christians that he had burned. That's what he thought of Christians. This is the guy in charge when Saul, who would become Paul, is in prison at Rome. And so in the year 67, probably early one morning, Paul's prison doors are opened. Guards come in and took him out came in and took him out silently and walked him outside the city. And I'm sure Paul figured out pretty quickly where they were taking him. I'm sure he recognized he was in the region where the executions happened. And without any ceremony, without any eyewitnesses, and no one knows exactly where the spot is, he was executed. He was beheaded. His life ended. But the impact of his life had really just begun. A year later, 68, Nero commits suicide for fear of being assassinated by his followers. And today, we name our dogs Nero, and we name our sons Paul. And if your name's Nero, I'm really sorry. Now, here's the significance of all that. Very, very, very bad things can happen to really, really good people. And God is still on the throne. Very unexplainable things can happen to people who are extraordinarily faithful. And God is not rocked by that. He isn't changed. It is no mystery. This is all a part of the story, and it has been a part of the story from the beginning. 
And never in the book of Acts do we find Christians huddled together afraid that God has lost control, afraid that God doesn't love them. You don't find that in the book of Acts. We don't find these American types of of complaints or fears. What we find is a bold, bold commitment to this life-changing message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it was Paul's boldness and it was his courage to get on a boat time after time and visit some of the most pagan cities, some of the most dangerous places, hostile to his message. But he consistently did that, and it is one of the primary reasons that you know about Jesus today. It's one of the primary reasons that the gospel got outside of Palestine and spread all around the world. It was really the beginning of the global church. It was really the beginning of the Gentile church. And even though the persecution heated up intensely around the city of Jerusalem, Christians all around the Mediterranean rim began to thrive and multiply, and Christianity spread and spread. In addition to being a missionary, there was something else that Paul did that was extraordinarily important. And it was important for you and me. The Apostle Paul was a very educated man. He was likely a a wealthy man. He was a Roman citizen. He had opportunities that his brothers back in Jerusalem, his Christian brothers, would not have had. He had access to education and things that his other brothers might not have been able to get. In fact, what got him into trouble with the Jews in Jerusalem is that he had a Gentile version of Christianity. But the thing that God raised him up to do was to help those who did not have the benefit of a Jewish upbringing, who didn't understand what the Old Testament was all about. See, if you didn't grow up in that, you didn't memorize it, and you didn't didn't have it taught to you every day, it it was foreign to you. It, It didn't line up for you always. Because a lot of the people that Paul was talking to hadn't grown up looking for a Messiah. They hadn't grown up being forced to memorize large, large chunks of the Old Testament. And so Paul is going to try and distill for them the essence of the gospel. What is the irreducible minimum? What is the gospel? What's the good news that if you're going to hand it down from generation to generation to generation, what is that? That even if you're not Jewish, even if you never understand the Old Testament, here's the thing that you have to understand. Here's the the new thing that God has done in our midst. And in the book of 1 Corinthians... I'd invite you to turn over to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. He gives us the synopsis of this message, the takeaway for all of us who are the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. And in this passage, he defines for us as clearly as anywhere in the Bible exactly what the gospel is and what it isn't. Exactly what the gospel message is was that had to be transferred from generation to generation. And here's how he describes it in 1 Corinthians. This is a letter that he wrote during that time he was traveling around the world uh, you know, to these different gatherings. He wrote this to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you. He's been with them. He's going to remind them now. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. So now he's going to remind us. Which you received and on which you have taken your stand. And then he clearly gives it to us in verse 3. For I received, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. So here's the most important thing Paul says. 
Here's the most important thing. This is what I want you to get. This is what I want you to know and understand. Don't lose sight of this. Of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried. That's what you do to a dead person. You bury a dead person. That he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. A lot of people don't realize that Jesus appeared to a very large group of people after he was raised from the dead. It wasn't just one or two. And then he finishes up by saying this, most of whom are still living. Why did he say that? Well, because this document was written somewhere between 20 and 25 years after the resurrection. And he says to the Christians in Corinth, you know, this resurrection, I know it's hard to believe. I know it's hard to get your head around that. It's hard to embrace that someone can die and be raised from the dead. I get that. But what you need to know is right now, you could get on a boat and you could go to that part of the country or that part of the world and some of that over 500 people are still alive and you could ask them, what did you see? And they would tell you, we saw the resurrected Christ. We saw it. And he says, though some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, who is the brother of Jesus, then all the apostles. And then listen to Paul <clears throat> as he brings it back to his personal ministry. Verse 8. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. You say, Paul, you started all these churches. You know, church planting, I don't know if you know this or not, but church planting is one of the hardest things in the world to do. It's very hard to plant a church and make it grow. And yet, if you could see the map, I, I should have put it on there for you so you could see. I wish you could see the map and see all the places, all the cities where Paul went. First of all, he went there. He encountered people, made converts, made enough converts to leave a church, then went to another city and did the same thing. And when you see the map, it's littered with cities where he did that. We're lucky if we convert one person in our lifetime. Paul converted all kinds of people. It's amazing to think what Paul did. So Paul, why do you think you don't deserve to be called an apostle? He gives us the answer. Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. Powerful. He says, I don't know why God chose me to do this message thing. Of all the people that should have been chosen and plant churches and all these gatherings, I am the least of the ones God should have chosen. And he chose me. And he chose me by his grace. And that was central to the message of Paul. You read Paul's words and you see that over and over again. He's talking about grace. And to us who don't have the benefit of a Jewish upbringing and we haven't been steeped in old time, Old Testament uh, scholarly scripture. He brings to us the bottom line, the thing that you can't ignore. And here it is. I'm going to put it up on the wall for you. I'm going to read this through a couple of times and I'm going to ask you to, my goal is that you have this memorized by the time you leave. We're going to read it together in a minute. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. That's it. That's the message. 
You say, Brad, I don't know what to tell people about Jesus. Christ died, he was buried, he arose, he appeared. That's all you need to know. Yeah, Brett, but what about, you know, I read about creation and what, what happened to the dinosaurs? Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he arose, he appeared. I know, but I read Revelation and the thing about the horses in there and the whole world catches on fire and burns up and it ends, comes to an end. What about all that? Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he arose, he appeared. You know, you're going to have all kinds of questions. People are going to ask questions of you. You're not going to get it all right all the time. You're not going to have every answer to every question that people have of you. No one has those answers. Only God has those answers. You're going to, you're going to have some questions. You're going to have a hard time understanding God sometimes. You're going to have a hard time understanding the Old Testament. There are going to be verses of the Bible. You're going to read them and you go, I don't know what that is. You're going to think it's really complicated. You're going to say to yourself, I've never been to seminary. Guess what? I've never been to seminary. And Paul says, here's the irreducible minimum. You just can't lose sight of this. Say it with me. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He raised. He appeared. That's it. That's it. That is the gospel. That is the starting point. And at some point, it dawns on somebody that Jesus really did die for my sins. My sins. And I am forgiven. That's what brings us together. That's what unifies us. That's what ties us together. Is that Jesus died for our sins, and because of that, we are forgiven. And he was buried, and he raised, and he appeared to over 500 people at one time to show, hey, I am who I said I am. I can do what I said I was going to do. And he conquered death for us. Does that make you feel good? We're all going to die one day, but we don't have to be afraid of it because Jesus beat it. Now, if you're here this morning, and you're a believer, you no doubt buy into all that. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, here's what I would say to you. I would say to you that you have to do what Pilate had to do. You have to answer a question. Here's the question. What do I do with Jesus? What am I going to do with Jesus? Do I believe he is the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, risen from the dead, or do I not? When I was in Bible college, we had a guy come and speak to us. I don't know why they did this, but they split the guys and the girls, and it wasn't one of those kind of talks. You know what I'm talking about? It wasn't one of those kind of talks, but, but they split us up, and I don't know why, and this guy spoke only to the guys. And he, he, he spoke this powerful message. I, I, I mean, I can still see him. I can, he was a big man. I can see his Bible, and I can hear his thunderous voice, and he preached this, he basically preached to us like we were lost. And he, he came to the end of his message and he said this, and I'll never forget it. And if you're here this morning, I'm going to say this to you. Because I have clearly outlined for you this morning 
what the gospel is. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm telling you, Jesus died for your sins so that you can be forgiven. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. He is who he said he was. And he's waiting on you to make a decision as to whether or not you're in or you're out. And I'm going to say to you what the old man said to us that day when he preached at us. Gentlemen, today you have heard the word. And you can either accept it or reject it. But you can never again be one, not called. You know what that means? It means one day you're going to stand before God and you can say a lot of things to him on that day. But here's one thing you can't say. God, nobody ever told me. Nobody ever told me. Because on 2-24-2013, you walked into the Crossland Community Church. And it was clearly explained to you, this is the gospel. You are a sinner. Christ died on the cross for your sins. He was buried. He was raised. And he appeared. And we gave you the opportunity to give your life to Christ. We're going to stand and sing in a minute. And when we do, you have the opportunity to say, I want to respond to that. I want to be forgiven. I hope you will. Before we get there, let's pray together and then we'll stand and sing. Father. I think quite possibly the best argument for Jesus to someone who doesn't believe is just look at the life of Paul. Look at the hardship he went through. Look at the the many miles he traveled, the way he was mistreated and abused. And just, why would anybody do that? He did it because his life was changed by you. And it's because of Paul and it's because of guys like Ananias who were willing to be courageous and bold and step out when you called them. It's because of those guys that the message of the Bible made it out of the first century and the gospel got to me. And someone sat me down and helped me to understand that God loves me. That he died for my sins. That they put him in the ground and he was raised. And he appeared. And he's been appearing ever since. Father, this morning, if there's someone in the room who's never said yes to you, Never said, yes, I want to be forgiven. Yes, I need Jesus. I pray that you would come upon them now so powerfully that they could not resist you. Father, for the rest of us, we love you. And we stand here humbled and amazed that you would choose to use any of us to do anything. But you do. You call us to tell the world about Jesus. And you empower us to do it. We depend on it, Father. We, we must have it, your help. 
We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.